Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the all-new Razor Guide Pack from Outdoor Edge has it all. Coming in at only 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. The Houndsman XP Podcast Network is taking you on the journey. Your host, Master Trainer Heath Hyatt, will combine his decades of experience as a houndsman and as a professional trainer that will light the path forward and make our packs lighter on this lifelong journey to become better hunters and houndsmen. There are no shortcuts, so lace up those boots and grab a dog leash. The journey begins now. We are going to Indianapolis, Indiana, and we're going to talk about medical alert dogs. We're going to talk about how we train them, what you can train them for, some of the things that they look for when they do train them, and we're just showing everybody that the value of a dog. And no matter what we're doing, that dogs have such a high purpose in life that a lot of us take for granted. But today, I'm with Dr. Jennifer Cate. Got it right. <laughs> and she's been nice enough to take time out of her schedule to sit down and talk to us and explain this. So we're just going to get into this because I am excited to learn about this. And I told her what brought me on to this is I was at the Freedom Hunters Benefit Golf Tournament um, Classic with Jim Shockey a couple weeks ago. And I met a veteran that had a medical alert dog and we started talking and like it just piqued my interest. Um, I know they're out there. I kind of know the function of them, but I want to learn more details. So, Doc, I really appreciate you being with us this morning. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be able to share what we know about this subject and, and maybe pique some people's interest on it. Yeah, so... It's going, it's going to, like I said, I'm, I mean, you can see the smile on my face because this is something that is truly, um, beneficial to many people across the world and to have somebody that can actually sit down and talk to us about it is even better. So, all right. I know you and I talked just a tad, what, tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll get into a little bit about what got you into the dog field and then we're going to talk about your PhD. All right. Well, I was born in Indiana, so I'm technically a, a Hoosier, but I grew up in, I grew up abroad. So my parents went to North Africa and then France. So that's where I spent most of my life. And I started my career as a dog trainer in France, right across the Swiss border. So I, I've been a trainer since I was 18 and I'm now 56. So you do the math, how long I've been working in this field. And so I've been trying to pretty much every method. But what really piqued my interest was the human and animal bond. So I went ahead and went to the University of Geneva where they had an ethology program in the psychology department. And ethology 
for, for those of you who are not familiar with what it is, it's animal behavior. It's a particular section of animal behavior. It's a particular way to look at animal behavior. And so I did my PhD in a field that is not very common. It's uh, about spatial navigation in dogs. So how do dogs use their the, use the information that they gather from the space that they're um, moving around in to to find their way? You know, how do they make shortcuts? How do they figure out new new um, uh, ways to get to what they need to get to? So that was my dissertation in uh, <laughs> for my PhD. So I've done a lot of really crazy stuff with dogs, a lot of research um, on different subjects. But I was really interested in how dogs can help people. So when I came back to the US in 2003, I worked at a service dog organization here. It's a prison program. So I was leading the prison program and, and teaching trainers, inmate trainers, how to train service dogs. And in the course of that, at the same time, we, start, we started seeing that diabetes alert dogs come out. And so one of my jobs was to figure out how to develop a program to train such dogs. And so I started that in prison. And since then, about 10 years ago, I founded a new organization called Medical Mutts. And we're specialized in the training of medical alert dogs. And so we're not only doing diabetes anymore. We train dogs for diabetes, for seizures, and for psychiatric conditions. And what all of those have in common is the use of smell. So our dogs are trained to smell when somebody has a, a particular event. That's, yes, and, and I want to talk about some of the stuff we get into with tracking, but I want to go back to your study um, when you was getting your PhD. So mm -hmm. you, you said you studied how dogs use the space around them. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that just a little bit? Yes, yeah, so... So um, the Department of Ethology in Geneva was focused on hamsters. And what they found, which was really fascinating, is that, it, you know, hamsters have these, they, when they go out, right, they, do a, they go from their nest to go gather food. So they take these, um, you know, they call it a journey, but they just kind of travel to look for nuts and then they gather all the nuts in their cheeks and then they have to go back home as quickly as possible because they're loaded. So they're slower. They're more at risk to get to have predators uh, catch them. And so they have to go really go back home really fast. And so the ethology department was focused on how, what do they use? How do they get to go home that fast? And what information are they using for that? And what they found was quite um, fascinating is that they they, of course, use a lot of um, information from the from the environment, but they also are able to get back even if they they don't have any information. I mean, their their brain is recording their uh, how many steps they make, how many uh, turns they will make, and it kind of calculates a vector that leads them straight back home. Right, so it's what we call uh, path integration. So the question is, how do dogs do it? Because we hear of dogs that travel on really long distances, right? And mm -hmm. but we don't really know how it's done. And I think since since I've done this study, this was a long time ago. Some some more data came on that subject that I'm not. It's not my field of expertise anymore. But what I did is I had to figure out a way to get dogs in these huge arenas. I would I built um, la labyrinths 
for the dogs to have them go through. And I was playing around with certain, um, you know, elements in that labyrinth to see if they were using them or not to figure out new routes. So one of the craziest experiments that I did is I had this big, giant, um, it's like a box, with, uh, probably 40 by 40 uh, box with a box. It's like a big room, but it was made of tarp. It was outdoor. And I had the dogs go in through one side. I would show them where a piece of food was and then carry them outside, turn them twist them around several times as I was carrying them to the other side, blindfolded. <laughs> and then I would release them from the opposite side. So they would have to figure out where they were to locate that piece of food. And of course, there was all, all sorts of system to confuse their sense of smell and all of that. So they couldn't use that at all. But um, it, was, it was really interesting. It taught me a lot. It taught me one thing that these experiments taught me is that dogs have a sense of, of numbers. If I place 10 pieces of food, they would stop after the 10th piece. Meaning I was just blown away. They would find a, about eight out of 10 pieces most of the time. And, and they would stop after, after you know, they had, they had looked for the, like it was very clear in their mind that they were not going to look for 15, 20 pieces. They really would stop after they had completed the task. And, you know, you're talking about food that was hidden on a, on a soccer field. So in a very, pretty large environment. So yeah. anyway, it was, <laughs> this is a long time ago. And it was, so it's not all fresh in my head, but I, I just remember how, how incredibly, um, smart the dogs were through all of this and how they blew my mind more than once because they would switch from one modality for the for to the other like they would go from visual to scent uh, really really fast and so I, I learned a lot it was fun so do you think that they were relying on their nose for that food and they knew that after they eat that last piece that they did not smell it would that so what I what struck me um, is that actually dogs will use visual information before they use their nose. So you know how we, we always say that dogs live in an olfactory environment, mm -hmm. which is true. They have access to so much more that, than we have. But the truth is if, they, if you give them visual information and olfactory information at the same time, they will use the visual first. Now, if the visual is confusing or contradictory, then they will switch over to olfactory, right? But what that means is that in my field, that's a really important information because it shows how important it is to, when we're training one of these dogs, that we have to eliminate all the visual cues. We have to make sure that we're not throwing off the dog because we're standing a certain way or we're, you know, just... Um, looking at, 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 you know, in the direction of the, of the, of the scent or something like that, so that they're not queuing off of our body, but instead just using the visual information. And if you think about it, it makes sense because when you look at a scene, you're, you get so much information. Your brain is capable of getting a whole lot of data all at once, really cheaply. There's not a whole lot of processing, right? Mm -hmm. You can tell we're, the entrance is, where people are, where all sorts of things are. But if you have to locate the source of a smell, that requires more analysis. Now you have to compare, you have to, you know, um, figure out where the smell comes from. So 
olfactory information is actually more costly to the dog than visual information. Yeah, and this goes back to, to Cameron's cognitive testing. Like it, it shows that a lot of dogs will go to that visual and, yeah. you know, then the other dogs will say, wait a second, my nose is saying here, my eyes are saying here, and they then they f- default to the nose. So that, that cognitive testing that Cameron does is kind of falling into place to what you're saying. Yes, absolutely. And it's really important for us as trainers to know that because we have to be careful that the dogs, when we're setting up a training situation, that the dogs are really going to use their nose and not visual information because that will always be their default. So you guys that are training dogs, you've heard us talk about it on this podcast before. Do not overstimulate your dogs through visual. Um, especially in the law enforcement world, that's one of the worst things we can do is get a dog trying to rely on his eyes and not his nose. Um, and, of course, you know, you're saying it. You know, Cameron talked to us on a podcast a while back about the cognitive testing. So it completely makes sense to me. I mean, I see the result of that that over that overstimulation through the eyes. So. Yeah. Yeah. So you got into dog training and now that you come back, did you start at Cook County? Is that where the jail was at? No. So there were five different prisons in, in around Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. So we were all within three hours of Indianapolis. Yeah. We, um, we end up, we have a lot, we deal with a lot of people that's come out of that, that jail for some reason i don't know how they get down here but they do all right so talk talk, tell us a little bit about um what the dogs what you're using the dogs for or how many different um medical uses that we could actually use a dog for so um we know because we have contributed in studies on that we know for sure that they can be trained for diabetes and for seizures, right? We have proven that there is a scent related to that. But we also know because we've been doing it for a long time that they can be trained to help people with psychiatric conditions. So we collect scent from people whose anxiety is going up, you know, when they're about to have a panic attack. So we have a fridge with samples from hypoglycemic episodes for diet, that's the low glucose levels for diabetes or from people who are having an epileptic seizure, or from people who are having a panic attack, um, you know, an anxiety attack. And we, we can train the dogs to detect that smell, to be sensitized to that smell, and then produce a specific behavior. So the smell becomes a cue for the dog to come and alert their person. So how do you collect that? that smell are you doing this through gauze pads or how do do you collect that where you can refrigerate it so it's cotton balls or gauze pads Mm -hmm. and what we ask our clients is to wipe that on their forehead or on the back of their their neck and then put it in a ziploc bag and then blow on it so it's a it's a mix of skin swab and breath Mm -hmm. So can you get into the chemical, how it changes the chemical compound of the human? Um, and I'm, now I'm going to go back to what you said before. So we know through uh, our tracking application um, that when you have 
people that we are tracking, whether it be Alzheimer's patients, whether it be um, ki- uh, people with schizophrenia, um, different things like that, that their chemical makeup is different. And a lot of times our dogs will track, but they will give us a completely different um, behavioral change than if they were tra- tracking somebody that would be of normal chemical compound. Does that make sense? That makes absolute sense. Yeah. I have not heard of that before, but it makes complete sense with what we know. Because what we know is the reason why we're able to do what we do is because the dogs told us that they were picking up on something. There's a study that came out that showed that about a third of the dogs that live with people with diabetes have shown at some point or another a change in behavior right as their person was going into hypoglycemia or or hyperglycemia. So when they had a change of glucose level, the dogs, many dogs pick it up on their own. Mm-hmm. They will start licking the person. They will start staring at them. You know, there's just something that's concerning to them. And what struck me when I was working in the prison system is when we started training those dogs, because we, we figured out that it was scent, so we started really um, working with the dogs on scent. Then they also started acting in a, in a strange way towards people who were about to have a seizure. And because the prison system, there's a lot of people living in a, in a small space, the dogs were exposed to people who potentially had other conditions. And so we started realizing that, hey, there's a smell also related to seizures. And it's possible that it's a similar smell. And we don't know right now. There is no, we don't have any data on what those chemicals are. That part we, we don't know. I think there's similarities between all those conditions. And it's possible that what the dogs are picking up is a change from a, a normal, typical human. There's, there's these particular um, molecules that are secreted when a human is not doing well, or any animal. I mean, I, if you look at it from an evolutionary perspective, we can Im- even imagine that maybe that's the information that wolves are gathering from prey to figure out which ones are diseased, the right? Weak, or have the weak link, yep. Exactly, exactly, which would make complete sense. So to me, I mean, and, and like I said, I have no medical knowledge at all, but it has to be some type of chemical dump or withdrawal. Would that make, would that make sense? Well, it, it'd have to be a dump because if we withdrew it, then the dogs wouldn't have that behavioral change. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Mm-hmm. And it could be a stress from, you know, some some kind of stress response from our, our, our bodies because something is wrong. Um, but we really don't know. And the doctors that I work with have no idea what is the organ that is producing that smell? Where is it coming from? So it's it, because it's a world that we don't understand, mm-hmm. right? It's a world that we we're not uh, privy to at all. It's not something that uh, the medical field has explored yet. So they're just starting to do it because dogs are showing so much promise with all these conditions that now we're finally starting to have science behind it. But we're so far from getting answers. So I had, and I I don't know that this is factual but in their in their minds it was absolutely 
um, dog-related. So I had a nurse tell me a couple years ago that um, she worked in the hospital and they there was a, a child she worked in the the Nick Nick care what the anyway the the unit for kids and the they they had been keeping an eye on this one child for a while and so the parents kept bringing the child in and said something's not right something's not right well according to this nurse so I'm telling you third hand information she said that the the family's dog which was a lab you know, here we go, which was a lab, would not leave this child's side. Like, literally stayed with this kid. I mean, would stand over it, would, like, it was almost like it was protecting it. It was their their words. Well, come to find out, the, the child ended up having cancer. So, whether that actually happened or not, but in their minds, it absolutely happened. Um, they They say the dog completely acted went from being the good family dog to never leaving this child's side. So yeah. it's absolutely possible. We hear of cats doing that in nursing homes, <clears throat> right? Where they mm -hmm. will sit right next to or on, on the person before they're about to die. Um, so it's not just the dogs. Cats do that too. I don't know of other species, but you know, we're talking about very highly social species here. We're in in a in a wild a community of wild uh, uh, canines. They care for each other. They're bonded very strongly, just like we're bonding bonded to our own families. Mm -hmm. And so, for them to be aware of which which individual is not doing too good is important information. So they're they're very in tune with us. They and, and some of them have this ability to pick up on on changes that tell them that we're not doing well. So we know they can pick up on um, conditions like cancer, C diff, um, E. coli, um, uh, and cancer. It's not all of them. I know that there's like there's like four or five of them. Like lung cancer is one of them. Um, but there's um, melanoma also sometimes some dogs also have picked up on. So we're just at the beginning of this, which is fascinating, right? We're going to find out a lot more conditions that dogs can help with. So so dogs are able to pick up on some types of cancer? Yes, they are. Okay. And they're being trained for that? They can. The, the application is more complicated because you can't really train a family dog to pick up on cancer because... Mm -hmm. You know, if, if it's not going to happen in five, 10 years, how much practice mm -hmm. is that dog going to have, right? How much right. sense does it make to put a lot, you know, to invest a lot of resources in training that dog? Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And in a hospital environment, they, you know, they, they have other ways to figure out if you have cancer or not. So I'm not sure there's a whole lot of applications for dogs in that field. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that... Yeah, and I guess that does make a whole lot of sense. Not, you know, you can't you can't purchase a cancer dog and have it for ten years and it never and it turns into just a dog if you don't have the, the disease. That's so yes, that that's completely understandable. And, then, and are you going to keep practicing with the dog to keep the skills up? You know, mm -hmm. just in the event that you might have cancer. Yeah. So, so right now, seizures and low sugar basically is the 
the term that the dogs are prevalent. Do you know how many are actually in service in the United States? Hey guys, the journey on Houndsman XP is teamed up with Go Wild. Go Wild is a social media platform that was made for hunters by hunters. If you guys and gals have listened to any of the other podcasts that I've been on, you know what a huge outdoor enthusiast I am. I love being in the woods with my hounds. There's nothing more exciting than hearing the thunder of a spring gobbler. I love fishing for trout in the brooks and the streams, and I love being on the river chasing that ever-elusive fish of a thousand casts, the muskie. Go Wild is the place that I can post my trophies, hunts, and memories without being censored. But Go Wild is so much more than that. It's a place to share your stories, sharpen your skills, hone your tactics, get gear reviews, and shop for anything outdoors. When you make a purchase from the Go Wild store, everything is free shipping. Anything that you purchase anywhere in the country, no matter how big, free shipping. So go down to the show notes, click on the Go Wild link at the bottom, and get signed up today. And let's go wild. If y'all purchase anything from Go Wild, make sure that you're using the Houndsman XP promo code. And that code is going to be HXP10. So when you go in there and you download your cart, and you come up to the bottom and it says promo code, add Houndsman XP to it. The journey on Houndsman XP has teamed up with one TDC. This dual action support for oral health and mobility in our dogs. This unique supplement is so effective that it is recommended by top veterinarian experts worldwide to maintain and improve our dog's health in four different areas. Their oral health, hips, joints, and muscles, skin, coat, energy, and recovery. Guys, I've been using this product for the last six months, and it has been a game changer for me. If you're looking for something to help with the overall health of your dog, go to WorkSoWell.com and give this product a try. It is highly recommended by Houndsman XP here on The Journey. No, I do not, because unfortunately there's no... There's no data on that. There's a lot of organizations that do it mm-hmm. um, in the U.S. and through the world, you know, throughout the world. But there's no database of, you know, where all these dogs are are recorded into. Mm-hmm. So we can't tap into that to really, really figure it out. Um, you know, we've placed over a hundred of them. We have. I'm working with other teams in in europe that i coach and and train one of them is doing nothing but diabetes the other one is specializing in seizures and they each have at least 50 dogs um under their belt now that they've placed so but other than that i don't really know how many other groups are placing a year i got you so let's go into the the side that that really drives me is so do you have a breeding program or y'all just doing selection testing? So medical mutts is specialized in training rescue dogs. Mm -hmm. 
So we went, we decided to not breed dogs. Mm -hmm. uh, I used to be in a program, the prison program did have bred dogs, but we decided to go a different route. So we, we select dogs based on temperament. Right. So when you go to test these dogs at the shelters, how do you, what are some things you're looking for? And when you say temperament, I have a, um, an over, overall perception of what you may or may not be looking for, but just try to explain to our listeners, like what are temperaments huge in, in what we do, whether it's be on the law enforcement side or the hunting side. Um, so what are some things that you're looking for? So first of all, we get dogs between one and two years old. So we don't get them as puppies because it, they're, you know, it's like testing. How can you predict what a two-year-old child is going to be like when they're 20? Mm -hmm. it's, yes. it's really difficult. So with dogs, with, you know, if you don't know anything about their background and you're just looking at a puppy and you don't have any clue what their parents are like, um, it's a crapshoot. You can have a great puppy, but that, but things are going to change as they grow through adolescence. So minimum age for us is one year old where they're still young. They're still going through some changes, but their, their behavior is a lot more predictable. And then we look at looks are important in the service dog world, because when you're going to place a dog with somebody with a disability, if some people are quite comfortable with some dogs that may look a little more, uh, a little more like like bully breeds or some breeds that are you know have um, can guard them. Some people actually want that, but in the service dog world, we don't want that too much because it it adds to the burden of the person when they have to explain all the time that their dog is a service dog that you know not to be not to be afraid or concerned about them. So we're looking for friendly looks, and then the dog has to be very social. Mm -hmm. So, and by social, I mean, we're not, the dog that's going to warm up to people is not social enough. It's social on the, on the very high end of that mm -hmm. spectrum. Really the dog that, that, you know, everybody's their friend. Um, they like everyone. They can put up with, with crowds, with all sorts of people, because when we take them out in public, we want that dog to be really comfortable around a lot of people. If they're not comfortable, they're going to be concerned about their own safety Mm -hmm. And then they can't focus on their person anymore, right? Yeah. Um, and then um, social with dogs, of course, but also high food drive because all of our training is is with food. Uh, we pair the scent with food. We want them to be extremely motivated in, in alerting. And we want them to wake up even to alert to a person if they're going to have a hypoglycemic episode in the middle of the night. So food is has to be a very strong motivator. You can't use balls in a in a supermarket if your dog did something good. You're not going to start playing with the dog. So mm -hmm. so treats are are critical. Um, but then the other some of the other traits we're looking for is a dog that we call a Velcro dog. So it's a dog that is naturally predisposed to hang out closely to to a person. It's a type of dog where you know you go to the bathroom and your dog is right behind you. <laughs> Right. <laughs> like my shepherd is literally laying at my feet right now and until I try to step over him to get up and go somewhere that's where he's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So so the great Pyrenees who's quite content hanging out in your backyard while you're indoors is not not the best candidate. Mhm. Mm right. And and that has to do with with physics, right? You want a dog that is 
pretty highly in tune with their person, but also that is close enough that if there's a change in scent, they're, they're there. They can pick it up immediately. So how far have y'all tested that? How far, how, how far away can the dog detect that? Um, which, you know, in a, in a, in a house, in a house where the odor is basically the majority of it's lingering within the walls of the house. Um, that kind of puts it down a little bit, but do they have to be in the same room or can, you know, can my dog be in the, the kitchen and I'm in the living room on the couch? How does that work? So that depends on a number of, of conditions. Um, so heat is a factor, as you know, you mm. know, airflow is a factor, but also uh, saturation of the environment. Like if you have somebody who's constantly having seizures, which, which some people have, so they're constantly emitting that odor, then the air gets so saturated with it that mm-hmm. it gets difficult for the dog and they get desensitized to it. Yep. Now, um, one of the, the, one of the stories that always that I have in my mind and I, and for me, this is, this shows the impact of these dogs more than anything was a dog that one of the French groups had recently trained and placed with a young woman. And she was alone in her house with her baby upstairs and the dog was downstairs and she was bathing her baby you know giving her baby a bath and the dog came rushing into the bathroom and started alerting her and you know she this was a new dog so she was not used to relying on her dog or trusting her dog and she wasn't feeling anything odd about about her she couldn't you know tell that there was anything wrong but in doubt she got her baby out of the bath water and placed it on the floor and immediately had a grand mal seizure. Mm. So to me, that you know, that's one of the stories that always sticks to me because I I cannot it it's the horror of the situation if that dog had not been there, you know, is just uh it's just uh, gut wrenching, you know. So but in that case the dog was, you know, came from downstairs. There's another another um, situation where oh sorry I have a puppy in here that's looking out the window. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> um, we had a a child and his dad were in the sea, so they were they were at the beach, you know, on vacation, and mom was staying on the beach with the dog on the towel, just just chilling there, and dad and and son were in the sea, so neck deep into the water uh, about 40 feet away and all of a sudden the dog that was on the beach started picking up some smell and and was visibly got agitated and started alerting the mom so she called her son and checked his glucose levels and he was indeed dropping pretty quickly so that happened because obviously the airflow was going in the right direction Right, so now you have mm-hmm. exterior conditions, airflow that also is going to matter. Um, had the had the wind blown in the other direction, this would not have happened. Right, so there's so the dogs are never a hundred percent accurate. We we're trying to get them at least to eighty percent accuracy. That's our goal. Yeah. So, yeah, I've got like tons of questions, and I don't want to bombard you with them. So after you test, so the, and one of the things that I noticed when I was down there, um, and Brian, Brian, so Brian had a, um, St. Bernard, very laid back. And, and while Brian and I was talking, you know, the, one of the things that, 
that I was noticing, and actually we we talked about a little bit, is the the calmness of that demeanor and that temperament. Um, a little bit different than what I'm looking for in the in the law enforcement world is I need a dog that can go 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 go. I do like to be able to shut it on and off, but literally when he would stop or be talking to somebody, the dog would just lay down. And then when he would walk off, dog get up and go with him. So is that a difference too that you're looking for in that, in that temperament realm? So we, so yes, the dogs that we use would not be good candidates for your purposes. We're looking for dogs that can go pretty much anywhere with their person. If you go, you know, whether it's a movie theater and they have to lay around for two hours, a restaurant, a place of business, school, um, you know, they have to be able to lay around and just live with the person in their day-to-day activities. And then, of course, be on the go when they're moving. But we're, we can't really work with high-energy dogs because then, you know, the, they may not fit into the lifestyle of the person. Now, we're not also looking for super low-energy dogs. Medium energy is where, we're, where, where it works best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can... That, that makes complete sense. And, and is it, would not be my, my breed of choice either for a number of reasons. Size matters, right? It's not practical when you go on a plane in a restaurant, you know, in public spaces that have a really large dog. And, and they're a little bit, um, a little bit too laid back maybe for our purposes, but it's, but they can work. Mm-hmm. So there's always outliers also in every breed. Right. So we've worked with German shepherds. We've worked with, you know, breeds that are not necessarily, um, typically what we want to do, what we want to uh, work with, but there are some dogs within those breeds that can work very well as well. What seems to be the breed of choice or what breed seems to have more dogs in this field? So uh, our dogs are all mutts or mostly mutts. We mm-hmm. do have a few, you know, purebreds, but most of them are mutts. The if I was to breed dogs, I would breed um, English labs. Mm-hmm. The English labs seem to have the qualities that we're looking for I got the most. It. So more more dogs, more English labs can make it than any other breed. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about the training process. All right. So we've got the odor, and we're, we're refrigerating it. How long for you guys? How long does that odor? last even though you refrigerate is it a six-month deal or is it something you replace monthly or how does that work and then talk to me a little bit about the training process so our samples are kept in the freezer Mm -hmm. and in the freezer they can stay for for a very long time um and when we work with them we we can use one sample for about two weeks Mm -hmm. that's after you thaw it yeah, so exactly. Mm-hmm. After we thaw it and we start training the dogs with it, then we can work with it for about two weeks. And temperature doesn't seem to affect the sample as much as um, airflow around them. So putting them in a sealed container is, is really critical. Mm-hmm. Um, if they stay out of the refrigerator, it's not going to affect them as much as it, as if we left them out in, in just um, you know regular air. Right. Yeah. So... It's probably the same as what you're using. Yeah, we try to use um, we re- we freeze a lot of our our um, 
synthetic odors, and we 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 switch them out every year. But we, I mean, we could probably use them longer than that. We've seen results where the dogs, you know, three years later they still smell it. Um, but you know, just for just for the listeners, a little bit about why we're freezing stuff, and this this will go into your guys' hunting environment too. And I know you've heard us talk about it. Is you know the molecule structure shrinks when it gets cold, and that odor does not escape as bad or at a, at a rate once it gets below freezing. Um, so you can take that and add it into your, your hunting environment. You know, you guys are in those cold, cold climates. Um, you know, the lack of odor is what makes the dogs have to really get down cold trail and the dogs really work that odor because the lack of. It's not that it's not there, but it's froze up. Where in your hotter climates, that just what you're saying, the odor will blow away and the, the elements outside takes a bigger toll on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're even saying that from, from what your studies and research has shown. Yeah. So do you, so get into the training and do you use one sample for one dog or do you have to use multiple, multiple samples? If you're, if you're only using it for two weeks, um, are you using multiple samples and do you see it? do you see a difference in the dog's reactions when you change those samples? Sometimes. So when we, uh, our process takes multiple months and our dogs go through three levels of training. In the first level, they're going to be working on all the basic obedience, but they're also um, learning the indication behavior on a sample. Right. Mm -hmm. And in that first level, we use a soup, so we, we will put a sample from hypoglycemia, seizures, and psychiatric because we don't know where the dog is going to go to at that point. Mm-hmm. So right. explain, and I know what the, we call it the cocktail. Yeah. Explain, explain that a little bit to the listeners so everybody, when you say the soup, what you're talking about. So in the same container, we'll mm-hmm. have samples from different people with different conditions. Right. right? So, because the goal here is, is classical conditioning. We're mm-hmm. just trying to condition the dog to the odor. Um, but in this case, we're, gonna, we're not going to specify one specific odor. We're going to have multiple odors at the same time. Right. And because the dog can scent discriminate, this is what allows us to do this process that you're doing. Instead of taking each individual odor and working that odor i.e. for a week a piece or however long you decide to do it you put everything in the soup bowl and you work that that odor for a week and i'm just using that for example that's not what i'm saying but you can use that odor for a week and the dog can pick up multiple odors correct yeah Yeah. and so we'll we'll focus on the indication behavior there because that's you know the, the first the first goal um, then when they move on to level two, now we're adding, so overall, they're going to learn about 30 behaviors in the process, but in the level two on scent, what we're going to focus on is discrimination. So now we're going to take one of these odors from, from person A, and we're going to put, um, samples from that same person in a normal state. Because what we don't want is for the dog to alert to George versus Sarah. We want George in hypoglycemia versus George in a normal state, right? Mm-hmm. So once we have that discrimination down, then we're done with, with the scent part um, on, you know, just for the samples. Then what we'll do is we'll place the sample on us. 
And we have, during the level two, we'll teach the dog to do a poke. So the, the alert behavior is to come and poke the person with their nose pretty strongly on any body part in any position, you know, whether the person is laying down in bed or standing up or turning their back and all of that. So we, there's a whole work on that that we need to do. And in the level three, we're going to pair the odor with that alert behavior. And that's where we have to be very careful with the visual because what trainers tend to do a lot is place the odor on them and then they're staring at their dog a certain <laughs> way or placing their, you know, their leg a certain way or just doing all these weird <laughs> attitudes towards the dog, uh, which, which can really cue the um, dog. Cue the dog. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. People don't understand that, you know, your eye direction, your body language, um, the way that you point, you know, and it's something that Cameron has really got into over his podcast is how much the dogs read your body language and know what you're doing um, before you actually do, do it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you can test that very easily. If, uh, you know, you don't have the odor on you and you just take the same stance, there's a good chance that the dog, if the dog has cued on that, uh, the dog's going to alert you too. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the fifth step, the fourth step is once we place the dog, the person themselves has some work to do because see, there's so much that we can do with samples. In, in the medical field, the, the complication is that going from a sample to a live body is a big step, right? Now we're, you're talking mm -hmm. about the whole body secreting that smell and you can't turn it on and off. When we have a sample, it's very black and white. We can, we put the sample on our body and then we take it off of us at the end of the training session. When a person goes into hypoglycemia, uh, they, they, their whole body is, is releasing that smell, right? Through breath, through mm -hmm. their, their skin and everything. But once, and it lasts a little bit longer as well, but once they're through it, once they're back to normal, they still carry that residual odor on them. It's not like they're going to go shower afterwards, right? Yep. So the dogs <clears throat> have to learn to alert to that change of smell. The sudden change is what they're going to be looking at. And mm -hmm. then ignore the, the, the ongoing release of odor that's going to happen after the event. Yeah, and that's one thing that, you know, I try to get my guys to not talk about residual or lingering or whatever. It's odor's odor, and mm -hmm. that odor doesn't go away. Um, no, it doesn't. It just yeah. don't, yeah, just don't, it just don't go, it just don't evaporate in, in thin air, does it? Yeah, yeah, that's no. right. So, so then we have <clears throat> do a lot of coaching of our clients to teach them how to get the dog to alert to them. So what do you do for those guys as far as after they have a, a, a seizure or um, a episode where the dog alerts? Do you have them go wash off or how do they keep the dog from sitting there and just like my shepherd right now is poking my arm because he wants my attention. How do you get the dog to stop once that has dropped to a certain level? What What is the threshold, I guess, is what I'm asking. Well, that, those are things we can't measure. Mm -hmm. We have no idea. Um, first of all, it's probably person-specific, mm -hmm. condition-specific, um, especially with seizures. The other complication is we don't even know how far out the seizure is. So a dog can come and alert you, and your seizure may be 30 minutes later. 
So do you reward the dog for alerting, you know, or at, at risk of alerting or of rewarding the dog for just uh, attention seeking behavior? Mm-hmm. You know, you can't always confirm that it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a true alert. Um, with, with diabetes, it's easier because there's actually technology that can help you confirm that the dog is correct. Although what we find is the dogs are often 10 to 15 minutes earlier in their alert than the technology. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. So it takes several weeks to months for the person to really get to know their dog and trust their dog enough mm-hmm. to start rewarding those alerts, even when they can't confirm that there's actually something happening. Right. And how do you guys shape the behavior for, um, the nudging like what is the process that you guys i mean i know you're doing the 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 odor odor recognition first and then then you go in once you start putting them on a human you know taking them away from i'm I'm assuming you're using boxes or cans uh we're using uh cans well Mm -hmm. we're using paint cans at first now we're using um like candle tins Mm -hmm. um but so while in the level two situation, while they're doing the discrimination tasks, we're separately teaching them the alerting behavior, which is the poke, mm-hmm. right? The, to come in and poke as strongly with their nose. And so that's just target training, right? We're using, you know, uh, spatula at first, and we start with touch, then transfer it over to a spatula, then over to a tape that's on our leg, mm-hmm. you know, and then remove that. That's so interesting that, that the dogs, which we know that they're so smart and, you know, dogs do anything for food. I've been telling, you know, this audience that for a long time, I mean, if the dog's food motivated or toy motivated, but you food is like the, they've got to have food to survive. I mean, and they will do whatever we ask them to do as long as there's a clear picture for them to perform that task. Oh, absolutely. And I will say that in the medical detection field, it's critical to use food and not mm-hmm. any kind of punishment because you do not want your dog to hesitate in getting out of a downstay to come to alert you, right? If right. you have trained with coercion and that mm-hmm. dog is like, well, I don't know if I, you know, if it's safe to get out to alert you and they have to make that decision, there's going to be hesitation, there's going to be confusion and, and, you're interfering with the problem-solving ability of, of your dog when you do that. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, it, and like I said, even though there's, you know, you're doing something completely different than what, what, what I even, you know, in the law enforcement side, we're doing the same principles basically just for a different uh, source. And then if you look at it on the hunting side, I mean, there's so much stuff and one of the things that you said there that I've heard over and over and over about how the wolf pack can pick out the weak link. Like, mm-hmm. and, you know, I never, I guess I knew it, but it's not dawned on me, like, reality-wise that, you know, our dogs are doing that at home. Like, when there's something wrong, our dogs just go, ding, okay, I need to go over here because this is going, something's going on. Yeah. I mean, you're just taking that, that it's... And, you know, you're saying 15 minutes ahead of, so you're saying that if my dog would alert to me and if I tested my blood sugar, it would probably be normal. 
and then within 15 minutes there would be a there would be a, a drop in it correct so those chemical compounds or whatever are releasing that much sooner than we actually well not only feeling the effects but actually see the effects Yes, and for seizures, it could be half an hour before. Wow. And, and the neurologists at this point are in disbelief. They don't, they don't understand how it's even possible. So we're working with several teams to try to figure that part out. We, we really do not know or understand what's going on that, that makes that possible for the dog to, to pick it up that early. I wish somebody, and I talked to, um, I had Ryan Hall on, Dr. Hall. And I would love for somebody to do a study on scent. Like, I'm waiting for that. He said it'll probably never happen because there's no, there's not that big a need for it. But, man, wouldn't it be interesting to know, like, what was really going on inside, you know, the dog? Inside the dog? I mean, or, or are you talking yeah, about... I, I mean, we know the, the, the nose, and we know they've got so many more scent molecule in the the olfactory system and you know we know how they take air in and breathe air out but like i would love to know how many how many particles it takes for a dog to recognize this odor or whatever it may be yeah and and we have no idea i know absolutely no idea yeah i mean we talk about it in in the hunting world you know um i've got they've got people's got dogs that can can trail a track up that's 12 hours old and I'm just using that for example and then you've got dogs that that will not absolutely will not run a track unless it's hot which means you know that it basically just come right through here and the question is is the dog just that much colder nose or to me I feel like it's it's training and it's lack of drive mm-hmm. to me because the dog should have the same scent capabilities Mm-hmm. It's just, I mean, maybe my training's messed up where I put them on hot track, I put them on a hot track, I put them on a hot track, and now that, yeah, I can smell this one over here, but go back to the wolf pack, go back to the pack. But I know that my chances of catching that elk that was in here 10 hours ago is slim to none. But mm-hmm. if if I ride around long enough or I walk around long enough, I'm, I'm going to cross that, that elk track that that was here two hours ago and by crackies, I can probably run that thing down. You know, that's, you know, in a train, in our training and stuff, it's different. So, and I mean, it, it's so interesting because Jeff Shetler talks about the, the, when you go to his school or his classes, he talks about how tracking, um, different, uh, people with medical conditions affects the dog so much differently. And you're, I mean, you're just reiterating, you know, what he says about the chemical makeup is different um, in somebody that has, you know, like you said, Down syndrome, that has, um, you know, Alzheimer's. Uh, we know that for us, our dogs act completely different in death odor. Oh, yes. Like, oh, it's huge. I oh, mean, yes. I'll tell a quick story and I won't wrap up no more of your time, but... We had a dog that actually we were looking for a suicidal suspect. So we tracked him from his car in a local park 
and tracked him from the car through the park into the wood line. And the dog literally just stopped, like was in good profile, tracking, tracking, tracking. And the dog just stops point, point blank in its tracks and just starts looking around. And then it casts and it comes back to the, to the handler. And he makes a big circle in there and they go back. And he's like, something's not right. So they, they go back and they do the same thing again. Dog does the exact same thing, goes right to the same spot, just stops dead in his tracks, will not go any further. Well, the guy was about 100 yards. Um, he had taken his life about 100 yards from where that dog stopped, and the dog would not approach it. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, de- the odors definitely have a different effect on on dogs, I think. So... Oh yeah, I think it, they have they have a uh, an emotional reaction to some of the odors. You know, some of the mm-hmm. uh, the odors that we release when we have health conditions. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why they're so focused, or like you were talking about that dog that was standing over the child, mm-hmm. they're legitimately concerned. Yeah, they they said that they was literally they would pull the dog away. And put him, and he would literally break out or try to get out of where he was at to get back to that child. So the dog knew what nobody else picked up on for a month later. Yeah. So it's amazing. It's amazing what what our animals can do and that, you know, look at the value for the person that has a medical condition and can have have a dog – that's more than a companion. It's a lifesaver. Absolutely. Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, Doc, I really appreciate your time. I think it's so neat what you do. Um, I mean, it, it, it got my wheels turning and thinking, and I kind of had it in my head how, you know, this things may go, but you've definitely enlightened me and our audience. And um, again, two different worlds, but, it's the same, it's the same principles. You know, we use dog A to complete a task for us, whatever that may task be. And, you know, yeah, we look for a little bit of different things. We're looking for a dog. Temperament is huge um, in all facets. Uh, The dogs that we had 10 years ago in the law enforcement world are not like they are today. Our dogs are so much more social um, back then, dogs were um, a lot more dog aggressive. The more dominant, the more, you know, um, out, out overstanding, overbearing dogs. And now those dogs are, we don't have dogs like that hardly at all. Um, it's, you know, the things have evolved and we've looked at training differently. And it's because of people like you and um, Cameron and the other people that that are doing this stuff day in and day out that have taught us that, there's a better way and there's another way to do things. There is. And, you know, we have to remember that stress gets in the way of learning also. And a stressed out dog that's, you know, really reactive to whether everything is not a dog that is fully um, capable of problem solving and thinking. And, you know, if there's one thing that I've learned over the many years that I've been doing this is dogs are really smart. They really are. And the only reason we're able to have the success we have with working with the invisible, you know, with all these, the the imperceptible odors that are all around us 
is because dogs have filled in the gaps. You know, we, we take them so far, but they have to do the majority of the work. And it's because they, it's, they're not just a, um, you know, a, a detector of molecules. They process that information. They make sense, you know, uh, of that information and they can make decisions based on it. So I think we're, we're very often we want to turn them into little robots when really they're, they're thinking, living, sensitive, sentient beings. And because of that, they can help us better. Yes. Yes. I absolutely agree. Is there anything that you'd like to leave us with um, today or on, on dogs training, anything, anything? It just is your time. <laughs> um, no, I, what I, I think we're at the beginning of understanding where, where this can go. We're, there's a lot of research happening right now, and I'm excited to see the next 10 years, how much we're going to be able to train our dogs to, to collaborate even further with people. Because for me, it's really, it really is about the collaboration. It's about teamwork. It's about you know, how, how the human and dog can understand each other so they can really partner each of their skills and, and together we can make, we can work a lot better. Awesome. I, one quick question. I meant to ask you this earlier, so I'm going to back it up. How, do you know how long that we've had, do you know when the first medical alert dog was put into service and about how long that we, that this has actually been something that you could acquire? About 15 years. 15 well, years. years ago, there's a group in California, um, Dogs for Diabetics. They mm -hmm. were the first ones to put out uh, diabetic alert dogs. Yeah, I know you said that you you went to the jail system in 2003 and started working on it. So I was just trying to clarify that. So, no, so I, I came in the U S in 2003 oh. working in the prison system in about 2008. Nice. Well, it's a good thing you do keep doing what you're doing and hopefully, you know, maybe somebody um, that's listening to this podcast needs a medical alert dog and we will put your information on the, the show notes and they can reach out to you if that's something that, um, that they can, they need, but I appreciate your time. I appreciate learning. Um, it's so interesting to me to hear the different facets that we all use our dogs for. It's such a commonality that I think we don't, um, we don't realize in the dog world, no matter what it is. And um, I do have, so our website is medicalmets.org for, mm -hmm. the, for the service dog part, but I do coach a lot of groups and a lot of professional trainers through assistancedog.center or jennifercate.com. So that's also another resource if anybody wanted to learn what we're doing Perfect. how to do it. Yeah. Awesome. All right, Doc, I really appreciate it, and I end every podcast in the same way. Thank you for helping us teach, train, and definitely learning on this episode well thanks for having me <laughs>